There were regular meetings between Red Army faction members and Stasi officials where they exchanged actual intelligence information. And the Stasi was very interested in that because the Red Army faction provided them with information on U.S. Army bases in West Germany. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. I talk with the editors of Terrorism in the Cold War, a new two-volume book that uses a wide range of case studies, including Polish military intelligence and its secret relationship with the Abu Nidal organisation, and Gladio, Myth and Reality, the origin and function of Stay Behind in the case of post-war Austria. The book sheds new light on the relations between state and terrorist actors, allowing for a fresh and much more insightful assessment of the contacts, dealings, agreements and collusion with terrorist organisations undertaken by state actors on both sides of the Iron Curtain. You will hear that the state terrorism relationships were not only much more ambiguous than much of the older literature has suggested, but are in fact crucial for the understanding of the global political history of the Cold War era. If you're enjoying the podcast, I could use some support to enable me to continue recording these incredible stories. If you become a monthly supporter via Patreon, you will get the sought after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Here's one of our financial supporters. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because of the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for next week's episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. I'm delighted to welcome Adrian, Premislav and Thomas to our Cold War Conversation. What we've realised when we put together the research of this book is that uh, a lot of what has been written so far on the subject was was uh, rather speculative often it often lacked actually a look at the primary res- at the primary source material at archival documents and a lot of it was actually even conspiratorial so what we tried to do is really kind of look at what is the current state of the art of the research on the question and bring together um, experts from actually the country that they're writing about and that uh, experts who work with the primary source material to kind of provide us with a with a current state of the art on on what state support for terrorism was during the cold war area and of course we we do have uh, a lot of the classical motives that we found states have supported groups for their st- to advance their strategic interests Ideologic, ideo, ideology, of course, too, uh, often played a role. But what we found was that the, the picture that was painted in the literature, really, when it comes to the motives, why states support terrorist actors, has been incomplete and that some important puzzle pieces have been missing. You sort of touched on the subject of some of the myths that are 
that are out there? What what are the sort of myths that are still pervasive out there? Well, if you look at how that question was discussed, actually, the research on the question started in the Cold War itself, and it has really been embedded in, in Cold War discourse itself. So we had in, in, in the West this tendency to see the terrorist, these various terrorist organizations, um, Middle Eastern, uh, left-wing, partly even uh, right-wing, um, to be portrayed as some sort of puppets of the uh, communist governments and intelligence services behind the Iron Curtain. There is this idea that they would be used by um, Eastern European and Soviet intelligence as kind of a spearhead, a weapon in the Cold War struggle to undermine Western democracy uh, in some sort of conspiratorial narrative that in, in, in this form, at least, um, doesn't hold up to, to the uh, insights we get from the Eastern European archives today. And, and it's kind of a mirror image of that play. We've also seen a, a discourse in Eastern Europe, at least until uh, 19, until the turn uh, around 1990, that and which kind of lives on among um, particularly left-wing intellectuals is that a lot of this Cold War terrorism, especially right-wing terrorism, was guided by the CIA uh, in concert with other Western European intelligence service. Um, Gladio is a big concept uh, that's often mentioned in that uh, in that context. Thomas Riegler will certainly add something to that. And equally, um, when we look at at least the available documents, archival sources that are around um, this uh, narrative also uh, cannot be backed up. So, Adrian, the, the, it sounds like the conspiracy theory that's expanded by um, some authors doesn't really hold water. So what what is the, the, the rationale around Cold War terrorism? Well, first, I might want to add that there were some individual instances where or there are some cases where the two superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, did use um, groups that use terrorist violence to, uh, within their geopolitical rivalry. The most famous or one of the most famous cases might be the cooperation between the KGB, Soviet Intelligence Service, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the uh, Palestinian militant faction within the PLO. Um, which was uh, which cooperated with the KGB in the early 1970s. They re- received a lot of weapons, trainings, uh, and money. And the KGB, as a, as a in return, asked the group to um, commit to an attack on a, on an Israeli tanker, the Coral Sea, in, in, in 1971. Um, so that obviously uh, was kind of an, off- an offensive use within, you could say, the geopolitical rivalries of the day. Um, in the U.S., one could mention the support for, for groups in, in Nicaragua that use terrorist violence or the, the support for anti-Castro terrorist groups by, by the CIA. So there were a few instances where this like, geopolitical rivalry directly led to offensive use of, of groups, um, even though obviously there was not this big conspiracy or master plan that has been claimed by the conspiracy theories. Um, but if we go away from that, the motives were often were often very different. Um, there were um, also use of terrorist groups to gather intelligence on the Cold War uh, enemy. Um, there is an example that we describe in the book, a very a fascinating article um, on the use, again, of the, the PFLP, 
where the KGB tasked them to to abduct a CIA officer in in Beirut with you with the aim to to gain intelligence secret information from him but uh, the PFLP declined this wish of the KGB which also shows that they were not uh, simply puppets uh, and, and kind of maintained their independence uh, as well and and then we have we have seen that these groups were often these terrorist groups were often really used as sources to gain intelligence on the Cold War enemy. This is um, also not surprising if we see that these terrorist groups actually cooperated with, usually with intelligence agencies when they cooperated with, with state actors. Um, uh, there's an example of, of the UK also here. In, in 1977, there was some contacts made between the KGB and, and the IRA um, during uh, the time of the North, uh, hot phase of the Northern Ireland conflict. But also here, the goal of the KGB was not to, to uh, basically incite or support terrorist uh, actions necessarily of the IRA, but they actually were interested in uh, secret information that the IRA could deliver them on the British Army. Um, so uh, again, here there is this uh, this hope that these militant groups could deliver uh, secret information intelligence that they would basically act as intelligence sources as well on the Cold War enemy, which we see a lot of example. The Stasi used the Badermanov group, the, the Red Army faction in that sense. Uh, and there would be a couple of other examples as well. And then we have um, cases which I think Premislav will, will later tell us a little bit something where... Um, Terrorist groups could be used by states, particularly in Eastern Europe, to um, go around embargoes or also to basically just simply uh, gain hard currency through as they were acting as brokers uh, of weapons deals. But uh, Premislav will uh, tell us much more about that. He wrote a fascinating chapter in the book on the relationships of Polish military intelligence with Middle Eastern terrorist groups. One of the things, and there were many things that I found fascinating about this book, which I had no idea about, was that obviously the, the West tended to portray the Soviet or the uh, Soviet bloc's manipulation of terrorism as some monolithic central control, whereas from the book, it's evidence that each Eastern Bloc nation dealt with terrorist organizations in different ways and often had different motives as to why they wanted to work with them as well. Absolutely. And I, th I think that's a, a, an important distinction to make. Um, if we take the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, for example, who probably was, uh, was given the most ex extensive support to terrorist organization among the Eastern European satellites, um, the situation looks very different there when it comes to support for terrorist organizations than uh, let's say in Bulgaria, for example. So there was not like a joint or common policy, although there was some sort of coordination on certain organizations, on how to handle certain organization or certain uh, policies that they interestingly or interestingly, often also call, uh, called counterterrorism. Uh, um, but generally speaking, there was no overarching comprehensive joint uh, policy, but uh, the states, the different states, um, kind of um, had very different approaches to different groups. Yeah, because with with the GDR, the evidence that was appearing certainly post the vendor 
was that there was quite extensive training of the Red Army faction by uh, the GDR military. Um, and, and also by the civilian um, intelligence service there in, uh, from within the Ministry of State Security. Um, yes, if we just look at, at these facts, then they, they look rather uh, extensive. There was, there was training. Um, there was there were different sort of support that that was provided to to the other mine of group by the Stasi, but if we have a little bit of a closer look, the situation uh, does look a little bit different. Um, this is also a, a good example, actually, that you bring up, Ian, is that we can't look at this in a, in a static way. The Cold War was not kind of a frozen conflict for five decades or for four or five decades where things were the same all the time and it was just the structure, but it was also a, a historical conflict that evolved and uh, the relationships between these intelligence services and the terrorist groups also evolved. And when we look at the relationship between the Stasi and the, the Red Army faction, it's interesting that in the 1970s, the Stasi actually was very hesitant to really um, provide active support to, to uh, the Red Army faction uh, Ulrike Meinhof, the early leader of the uh, Red Army faction, had approached the Stasi as early as 1970 and, and asked for a cooperation to use the GDR as a staging ground for their initiative against uh, um, against West Germany. But the Stasi outrightly denied the, that uh, or didn't allow her to to use the GDR. And later in 1979, the second generation of the Red Army faction again try to uh, get some support and listen some support from the Stasi and again was turned down by the Stasi who did allow the, the Red Army faction to use the GDR basically as a transit zone uh, when they were um, at large from West German authorities or when they wanted to get to the Middle East, to, to uh, Middle Eastern Palestinian training camps. But they didn't want to go uh, further than that for the most part. But then there was this brief period between 1980 and about 1980 and about 1982 uh, only about three years of this uh, larger coexistence of the two uh, organizations where there was some more intense and, and more comprehensive support where um, Red, Red Army faction members were uh, were receiving military training, uh, weapons training in the GDR, where the two groups also, and this is very interesting, I think, started to actually cooperate on intelligence ground. So there were regular meetings between Red Army faction members and Stasi officials where they exchanged actual intelligence information. And the Stasi was very interested in that because the Red Army faction, among other information, provided them with information uh, on U.S. Army bases in West Germany, where we see that the Cold War element comes comes in again, but not necessarily in the way that we usually think of when we, when we talk about um, terrorist organizations. Um, also, a couple, um, a number of Red Army faction members were allowed to kind of go into retirement into in the GDR at that time. But again, here we see it was not uh, some offensive conspiracy against the West because the condition was that these Red Army faction members would retire for good and, and lay down in the GDR. They weren't supposed to become operatives for the Stasi when they uh, resettled into the, into the GDR. But then already... In like 1983, 1984, the Stasi started to um, uh, basically wind down the active uh, support for, for the Bader Meinhof group again. So it was a relatively short period of time in the early 1980s where there really was an, an, an active support that included trainings and, uh, and intelligence support. 
The Red Army faction did carry out some attacks on NATO directly. There was a rocket attack, I think, on a US general. Did the GDR sanction that or co-plan that or, or were they quite shocked by that? I haven't seen any evidence. Uh, Thomas, you also, do you have uh, anything on that question? Well, there was some uh, rocket. They trained them to use a rocket-propelled grenades, um, and this method of attack was used against NATO General Haig, for example, and against another U.S. Uh, military official at least two times. And uh, in just just uh, shortly before those two attacks, the the, the RIF had training by Stasi operatives in using uh, those devices. So um, there is some kind of connection here, of course. And and how did the GDR feel about those attacks? Because if they'd been directly traced back to the the Stasi, then that you know it's almost like an act of war. I mean, this wasn't. Uh, public information at that time. It was like, um, okay, the RIF uses this kind of weapons and everything, but there were, of course, uh, rumors about uh, involvement of Eastern European secret services and everything, and and, uh, the question was always, where get those guys the training from and everything, but um, we only know about these uh, proceedings uh, from the Stasi archives, and that's and that happened uh, after 1989, of course. Yeah, and obviously some of those documents were destroyed before, so we haven't necessarily got the full picture from the Stasi archive. Exactly. Again, one of the, the things that I found really interesting was the fact that the Italian Red Brigades turned down Soviet aid and actively distance themselves from any of the the Soviet bloc nations. Yeah, I'm I'm not an expert on the Red Brigades, but it's correct that um, the the newest research by uh, some young scholars who are familiar with the, the Red Brigades um, kind of came to that conclusion that they were very hesitant, in fact, to to get too much uh, involved. That they turned down most of. Uh, that they interestingly also turned down actually an offer from the from the Mossad to cooperate as well, um, besides of all the Eastern European approaches. So there seems to be have there seems to have been a big hesitancy to get too much involved uh, outside with outside state actors, probably from a fear of losing of losing their independence. Well, so let me just get that right. So the Mossad were interested in working with the Red Brigades. The details are somewhat shredded in mystery, but there was there was apparently an offer to provide money, assumingly probably in return for the Red Brigades to provide them information on their Palestinian um, cooperation partners, assumingly. The details are much shrouded in secrecy, but there was an approach by the Mossad to, to provide money and cooperate with the Red Brigades at some point, which the Red Brigades also turned down. They're actually comparable um, offers from the Eastern Bloc that they turned down. And, and in interesting cases, there is this uh, famous abduction of General Dossier, an American general, James Dossier, who was stationed in Italy and was abducted by the Red Brigades in, in late 1981, uh, the first uh, um, hostage crisis of the Reagan administration, so to speak. Uh, he was held by the Red Brigades for quite some time and um, 
Bulgaria at that point was very interested in um, finding out what dossier was telling to the Red Brigades and wanted to uh, and, and was trying to get in touch with the Red Brigades through some Italian middleman to to uh, offer the Red Brigades money and weapons in turn for them sharing the intelligence they got from, from General Dossier. But um, this deal also never materialized. So generally speaking, it seems that the Red Brigades were, were very wary to, to uh, get into, into these kind of dealings and, and lose their independence. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Were, were there any terrorist attacks in the Soviet bloc during the Cold War? Yeah, of course. Um, that's that's really also one of these myths that's sometimes flabbergasting when you read it in twenty and uh, twenty twenty one that the Soviet bloc was was free of terrorist attacks. Um, not of course, it's also true that um, there were, if you look at the quantity and the quality of the attacks, there were much more and, and heavier attacks in Western Europe compared to Eastern Europe. It was a a, a larger security issue, so to speak, in in, in the West. But um, there were there were also significant attacks in the East of different quality. If we just think about uh, Yugoslavia, where we had um, Croatian anti-communist nationalists, uh, terrorists who committed a, a large range of uh, of attacks over uh, over several decades including uh, dozens of, of bombings, assassination attempts, and also actually uh, a couple of airplane airplane hijackings. Um, so uh, there is that. And then um, there were occasional attacks in, in Eastern Europe as well, um, which were just uh, enough of them that the Eastern European intelligence services were maybe partly paranoically, but certainly also always afraid that this terrorist violence could spill over fully into the Eastern Bloc and, and also threaten the stability of the dictatorships in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe. If we're, if we're looking to the Middle Eastern uh, terrorist uh, attacks, there were a couple of, of cases uh, where that went into Eastern Europe. In, in Belgrade, for example, there was an attack um, in, in 1980. The, there was a, a major attack in, uh, in, uh, in Bucharest, in Romania, in 1986, then uh, Hezbollah and other Shia terrorist groups from, from the Middle East were launching a, a campaign against Hungary, which included uh, attacks on, on embassy, Hungarian embassy in Aden, but also on the um, um, Hungarian air company in, um, in Kuwait, where um, because Hungary was providing support to Iraq or was delivering weapons to Iraq, which was at war with Iran at the time. So Iran tried to nudge the Hungarians to reduce their support for Iraq and actually um, used used Shia terrorist groups uh, against Hungarian interests. And in fact, 
Hungary at the end of that campaign started also uh, delivering weapons to to Iran as well. So it was actually a kind of successful uh, terrorist campaign. So you had a co- you you have a couple of also large scale uh, examples of, of of terrorist attacks against uh, the Eastern Bloc and their interests. And the the two volumes have a wealth of different uh, case studies, really within them. You know, ranging from Polish military intelligence, uh, communist Czechoslovakia, uh, Yugoslavia, as we've just mentioned, Bulgaria, Hungary. There's uh, a section on North Korea as well. If you have an interest in this area, I do recommend these two volumes. But what I wanted to do now was to just drill into a couple of the uh, case studies. So this will give you a flavor as to the the detail that you'll enjoy in, in this book. And um, we have Premislav, who has written a section on Polish military intelligence and its secret relationship with the Abu Nidal organization. Premislav, can you just explain to the listeners who Abu Nidal were? Yes, Abu Nidal, it's a code name for the person uh, who, uh, whose name was Sabri al-Banna. He was a Palestinian. Uh, he belonged to the PLO, but then uh, rejected the ideas of Rasir Arafat and formed his own uh, organization, his form group, which he called Fatah Revolutionary Council, uh, which was later known as Abu Nidal Organization. He was the mastermind, the boss, the leader of, I would say, even sectarian group, uh, which uh, political program embrace independent Palestine and no any talks with Israel. So his political line... Um, excluded any kind of agreements or talks or even relationship with with Israel. And in the late 70s and 80s, uh, Abu Nidal was one of the most dangerous uh, leaders of the terrorist organization because his group was responsible for several dozen attacks in more than 20 countries, which left more than 900 people uh, uh, dead or wounded. In other words, I would say that uh, Abu Nidal was, to some extent, uh, the Osama bin Laden of the 80s. So he was on the headlines of the news in Western countries. He uh, he had a vast network of uh, secret cells in America, in Europe, and in Asia, uh, and he was very powerful. Uh, his actions uh, he undertook, his decisions also influenced the uh, world events. For example, he ordered uh, his assassins to kill Shlomo Argov, the uh, Israeli ambassador in London in 1982, which uh, was a direct cause of the Israeli invasion on Lebanon in 1982. So he 
he was very powerful and uh, and he was also to some extent as his biographer Patrick Seal uh, mentioned in the biography a gun for hire a gun for hire because he maintained a relationship with uh, different uh, states in the Middle East and in Europe for example in Iraq in uh, with Iraq with Syria and with with uh, Libya uh, in the late 80s so he used that relationship in order to obtain uh, Um, uh, material uh, support like weapons, like funds, like logistical uh, logistic support, uh, uh, and he switched a lo- very uh, often the sides of of the Cold War uh, rivalry. So he was very dangerous, and to some extent, he also cho- chose chose Poland as his country where he might do some business and forge some kind of a secret relationship. And so why particularly did Poland want to work with him? What did they gain from the relationship? Poland uh, established a bank in Lebanon in 1976. A Polish bank, a commercial bank, bought some shares of uh, a noble uh, family talk uh, bank and established there uh, its uh, liaisons. So it may be the one of the purposes why Abu Nidal chose uh, typically Poland for conducted research. Secondly, Poland was one of the most important exporters of uh, Soviet-made military hardware in the late 70s and 80s. And uh, most of these countries which received Polish weaponry were the Syria, uh, Libya, and Iraq. So three countries where Abu Nidal uh, uh, had uh, uh, relationships. Uh, I mean, chronologically, would be uh, Syria, Iraq, and uh, Libya. Uh, so these countries use Abu Nidal uh, uh, as for uh, some kind of a wet jobs and use them in this uh, state non-state relationship. Poland uh, had arms. Poland had many embassies in the Middle East, and Poland had its bank in Lebanon. So uh, when we look at this relationship between Abu Nidal and Polish military intelligence, it's important to look at the economic factor of these ties. Uh, first of all, um, uh, Abu Nidal uh, uh, used the money which uh, was uh, uh, earned by uh, uh, the Polish um, government who used to sell weapons as a commission. So for let's look uh, I give you an example Poland was selling uh, tanks to Iraq in 1981 because Iraq uh, wanted uh, badly tanks uh, because of the war with Iran and who was the broker in this deal the broker was Abu Nidal organization the middleman in this arms deal was uh, Abu Nidal and in turn uh, they received commission money which was very hefty taking into account the the final amount of the sale, which was several dozen million US dollars. And so he used to earn this money by organizing some kind of a brokerage between Middle Eastern governments for for Polish People's Republic. And that was one of the sphere 
of the relationship. The second was intelligence sharing. So the Polish military intelligence used this group in order to obtain some information about Middle East, about other different groups, about PLO, about also uh, Israel and uh, its actions uh, in Lebanon. And thirdly, it was also... uh, embargo goods, which were very important for Polish economy and the Polish military intelligence. They wanted to obtain Western-made military equipment. And uh, this kind of international terrorist organization, they had many contacts, they had many secret cells in Western countries, in Africa and in other parts of the world, where they can acquire such embargoed goods, which were put on the Kokom list. So uh, Abu Nidal shared this kind of uh, weaponry. And last recently, I encountered in a very interesting example in 1981, uh, the Abu Nidal organization was able to provide uh, a Polish military intelligence the whole M16 tank which was uh, uh, captured uh, on the battlefield uh, on the Iran near the uh, Iranian and Iraqi border so that was a ample evidence a very i would say visible proof of uh, why uh, these relationships what was important and what was the driven force there was no ideology in this relationship so it's purely a pragmatic relationship that you know that both sides were getting something out out of it exactly and i i don't see uh, when looking at the polish um, relationship with uh, different uh, middle eastern organizations i don't see any kind of ideology of course there were contacts for example with uh, pflp and uh, dflp so the most marxist uh, uh, organizations uh, among the palestinian movement but can you just describe who those acronyms are? Uh, Popular uh, Front for the Liberation of Palestine and Democratic uh, Front for the Liberation of Palestine and both these organizations uh, had its uh, Marxist roots. Uh, moreover, the more hardline was the DFLP, so Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and they both maintained contacts and links with uh, uh, Polish uh, intelligence. But these relationships, they boiled down to, for example, uh, scholarships, which Poland uh, uh, provided to these groups based on ideological, um, uh, um, uh, ideological cooperation. When it comes to, for example, uh, uh, military support or intelligence support, of course, the Poles were gleaning intelligence, but there was no close cooperation in that uh, matter. Actually, when the PFLP, so the Popular Front for the Division of Palestine, wanted to acquire some weapons, they had to pay for them. And the declassified documents from the Polish arms company clearly indicate that the PFLP was paying for the weapons, so they did not get that for free. Right, right. And when when you're researching this, is is this a lot of this information from the Polish military intelligence files that that still exist? Yes, uh, 
there's a, there are some missing puzzles when it comes to this relationship, because it was forged in late 70s and lasted until 1990. So I based my research on the military intelligence files because they uh, uh, they did contain many details about uh, Abu Nidal and this group. However, the most important files are stored at the archive of the Central Engineering Board, so the state-run company which was responsible for exporting Polish arms uh, during the Cold War. And most of these files are still classified. So uh, I can only, to some extent, paint the broad picture of the collaboration between Polish military intelligence and, and Abu Nidal organization, but I can't estimate how actually it was worth when it comes to money for the Polish budget, because we do know that this collaboration embraced different, uh, different spheres. For example, uh, and we do have here like this, this Swiss connection, uh, the Polish intelligence established a company uh, in Zurich with uh, with uh, Abu Nidal uh, organization envoys. The company was called Intermador and it functioned until early 90s and was responsible for arms trade. Not only the Polish made arms trade, but it was responsible for conducting arms deals with different uh, uh, with different uh, uh, entities from both uh, uh, sides of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I'm, that's really interesting that this was continuing even up to 1990, these relationships. Maybe I I just add a little thought here. I, I think the the case study that Premise Love outlines is, is really interesting in that it shows how the Cold War, the broader scope of the Cold War affected these relationships between uh, states, intelligence services and terrorist organizations in uh, in ways that a lot of scholars and we for a long time didn't really think of. I mean, one is this economic straitjacket of the of the Comic Con of the um, uh, economies in socialist Eastern Europe, um, where these arms companies, as Promise Love outlined it, um, were kind of uh, usually selling their weapons and being paid in rubles. And um, these terrorist organizations, like the Abu Nidal group, really. Um, opened an opportunity here as brokers to sell to Middle Eastern clients. And so these economies could gain um, much needed hard currency. Um, another another uh, example would be the, the embargo, the Western embargo within the um, Committee for um, Multilateral um, Export Controls, um, these Western embargoes for technology, for, for, for weapons against Eastern Europe that obviously also um, was an important institution in the East-West struggle in the in the Cold War, but this really also made an opening for cooperation uh, between terrorist actors and and, uh, and Eastern European states, as these Eastern European states could use or enlist terrorist groups to basically procure um, uh, technology, electronic technology, particularly control technology uh, in the West, also weapon weaponry in the West that they couldn't get through open channels because of the embargo. And then at the other hand, these terrorist organizations could use that leverage to get some favors uh, in return, some form of support in return from the, uh, the Eastern European countries. So we see that a lot of these Cold War institutions like the embargo, the Western embargo, or uh, the, the Comic-Con in, uh, in Eastern Europe really had an effect on 
the, the relations that developed between, uh, between states and, and terrorist groups. Yes, I would also add that it was uh, purely business for the different intelligence agencies from the Eastern Europe. I mean, uh, when I look at this relationship, of course, there were some differences. For example, Bulgarians or, or GDR or even Romanians, they maintain some of these contacts with Marxist terrorist organization uh, on a different level. I mean, they were more active in, in supporting these groups. When it comes to Polish uh, perspective, this was very pragmatic and did not contain a lot of ideology, uh, which, which might be understood as supporting this group, which is in line with Marxist-Leninism. So the, the Polish intelligence, and, and why Polish military intelligence? Because the military was responsible for, for arms trade. And the Polish military intelligence, they did have many military attaché or defense attaché in the Middle East. So, so that's why, that's how they were approached in the, in the late sixties by the Palestinians. That's how it all uh, started. And this kind of a relationship was based on mutual benefits. So the terrorist organizations, they did get weapons, they did get uh, visas, for example, for their uh, uh, members of the terrorist organizations. For example, after committing some kind of a terrorist attack in the Middle East, that kind of a person might uh, might get visa uh, without uh, any problems at the Warsaw airport so on hand without uh, submitting any documents in advance so that was this kind of a favors which Adrian uh, mentioned uh, moreover they did not uh, had have any problems with establishing uh, companies uh, in Warsaw. In fact, when it comes to the mid-80s, there were two very important terrorist-related or, uh, companies operating in Warsaw. One was uh, SAS, which was controlled by Abu Nidal organization, and Samir Najmeddin, who was a chief of financial um, wing of this uh, Abu Nidal organization terrorist group. And the second was Overseas, which was controlled by Monzer al-Qasar, uh, different terrorist and uh, arms merchant who now is serving 30 years in American prison for uh, trying to sell uh, weapons to uh, 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 FARDs uh, uh, partisans. So Warsaw was used in the mid-80s as a place where terrorists or their blue-collar uh, supporters and friends can conduct some illegal business. Thank you for that. We're now going to uh, speak with Thomas about his uh, chapter, which is in Volume 2. It's entitled Gladio Myth and Reality Stay Behinds in, in Post-War Austria. Thomas, the the first question I wanted to ask you was the 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 Gladio myth is quite pervasive. Um, what evidence was there that of NATO secret armies being formed? Well, it's uh, it has become kind of a catchphrase for state terrorism, and um, there is this um, myth of NATO secret armies actually. Uh, behind terrorist attacks in Italy, for example, in the 1980s and 1970s, but 
but also behind um, supermarket attacks in very violent, very very violent supermarket attacks in uh, Belgium in the early 1980s also. And um, supposedly uh, all of this happened uh, to suppress uh, radical political change uh, in order to, uh, by the means of terrorism, so that uh, the public was scared uh, and would rally behind the status quo. And in Italy, um, there's this phrase of the strategy of tension that was deliberately used um, so that uh, the country wouldn't fall into the hands of communism. Um, the problem with this interpretation is that there is little uh, evidence actually to back it up. Uh, what we know about Gladio is that it was part of a resistance network that was uh, installed in the early Cold War in all NATO countries, but also in the neutral ones, uh, Austria amongst them. And the rationality behind it was that you would um, have a resistance capability already in place in case the uh, Soviet, Soviet Union would attack. And um, this was uh, a sort of, um, yeah, it was a tool for unconventional warfare. The main purposes were that they would, in, in, in times of war, they would have operated behind enemy lines, uh, making sabotage attacks and uh, perform escape and evasion. But also they would, um, they would transmit intelligence via those uh, previously buried uh, radio sets. Um, and what happened is that this uh, resistance concept was uh, reinterpreted as a tool of um, state terrorism. Um, and the problem is that um, so far we haven't found any kind of uh, evidence that uh, this Gladio or State Behind Network was actively involved in uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, but there is ample evidence that, uh, the that the intelligence services of some countries uh, installed a kind of parallel um, units who often cooperated with right-wingers. Italy is the prime example for that. Yeah? And those, uh, those Gladio units that were not officially part of the NATO network those uh, obviously had some connection to the intelligence services and they were used for, um, for a string of attacks starting in 1969 up till the Bologna bombing in the early 1980s. Yeah, Gladio is, you know, it, it was the, the, the name for the Italian stay behind, but as, as you say, it's become synonymous with any stay stay behind unit um where where were they recruiting these people from were they ex presumably they were ex-military or at least ex-security forces or something like that that depended very much on the country in question uh in the case of austria for example there were many military veterans uh recruited especially the ones who were able uh who, they, who had already an experience as radio operators um, in other countries, um, this was purely a military affair and managed by the intelligence services. Um, but uh, in the case of uh, Germany, West Germany and, and Austria, um, there was a, 
there was a big demand uh, to recruit uh, former uh, Wehrmacht uh, soldiers. How much was the British or the Americans involved in somewhere like West Germany? Uh, the British intelligence actually created the first stay-behind networks in Austria, in the southern province of Carinthia, which uh, obviously was a kind of precaution measure against uh, Yugoslavia. The British also had stay-behind networks in uh, West Berlin and trained them in the um, in, 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 a, in a wooded area of the city. And there were also some arms uh, caches in, in that forest. So um, both America and, and, and Great Britain were very much active actually behind and managing uh, the, the business of stay behind. Yeah, we, we have an interview with a member of Detachment A in one of our previous episodes who served in in Berlin, and uh, his story is a a very interesting story. I think the the Austrian example that you you go into more detail about is particularly interesting because Austria's position in the early Cold War is relatively unknown to the the general reader around around the Cold War because Austria was divided like. Germany into different occupation zones and its capital Vienna was divided into occupation zones. Anybody who's watched the Third Man film will be um, familiar with that. So the the British and the American involvement starts well. It it starts whilst they still have the occupation zones. But what I found particularly surprising is it continues post independence as well. Yes, um, it's it's it's. It started already in 1948-49 when the CIA uh, kind of recruited the first radio operators for its Operation Iceberg. But then um, in the 1950s, the Americans uh, shifted responsibility, for example, for uh, guerrilla warfare and uh, sabotage onto an Austrian outfit that was uh, created inside uh, a labor organization. That's uh, a very interesting aspect of the Austrian example that uh, labor organizations played a big part in it because they're very, uh, very much anti-communist. And uh, one of its leaders was uh, was kind of he was very close to um, to the CIA, and he kind of ran his own private army to some degree. And at one point, he even uh, became interior minister. And uh, he had this partisan organization still under him. When he ran into trouble a few years afterwards, he destroyed all the records about this uh, project. And that makes this, um, that makes, of course, uh, an examination uh, very, uh, very difficult because so many records were lost. So how, how have you managed to research this with, with the lack of um, some of the records? How have you pieced it together? Well, uh, there are not many Austrian records uh, available, but uh, the CIA has released uh, a lot of material due to, due to the Nazi War Crimes Declassification Act, and, um, which can be uh, searched online. And a lot of that material actually um, 
refers to the state behind activities in Austria because there were some people involved who uh, had connections to uh, Nazi organizations or were former uh, SS intelligence officers. Obviously, that's the reason why this ended up in this um, document release. And uh, because of that US material, it's, um, of course, it's one, it's a one-sided, uh, it's a one-sided affair, but we can reconstruct, um, how important and, uh, how long actually stay behind, uh, structures were based in Austria. You, you mentioned earlier that other neutral nations had stay behind units. I think I know that the Swiss did. What what other neutral nations um, had had these uh, units? Uh, Finland and Sweden both uh, had those uh, structures. Also, um, I haven't been looking that much into those examples. Uh, the Swiss, the Swiss one is is very interesting because in many cases at the end of the. 1980s, it was probably the most advanced uh, stay-behind network in all over Western Europe because uh, the Swiss were putting a lot of effort actually in uh, in making this a very professional outfit. But again, we what we can see here is that, um, for example, weapons and uh, ordnance was very much locked off from the from the members actually, so it it wasn't possible that ordinary members would. Uh, would, would take this material into their own hands. And um, the, the emphasis was clearly on training new recruits themselves, as getting people ready to train others. So uh, the whole um, business of stay behind in many cases was not, um, was not like having a, like an underground army available because the numbers were very small. It was, it was more like... Um, having a few people, trusted people around who could uh, train others to do the job as well. I think I read there was some British involvement in some of the training of the Swiss. Exactly, yeah. They, they, did, they even staged uh, an attack on an oil uh, rig. So it was quite... Um, this, is, this is really special uh, when you look across Europe. Fascinating stuff. And it sounds like there's... You know, there's more to potentially be be discovered. Do you expect further revelations from the archives? Um, in the case of Switzerland, there was a, a, a government report was uh, declassified just a few years ago. So there's a lot of material actually out on the Swiss case. Um, in other countries, the picture is much darker, especially when it comes to uh, France, for example. But uh, the Italian prime minister has just uh, surprisingly uh, announced that he would declassify all material on Claudio. And um, this would mean, of course, a big, uh, that's a big announcement, of course, yeah. Well, yeah, we, we look forward to uh, hearing hearing more about that. Um, what about the United Kingdom? I mean, they... The, the UK did develop a stay-behind network during World War II called the Auxiliary Units. What about during the Cold War? Did they build a similar structure? 
I must say that I haven't looked much uh, into the British uh, preparations, but it's very interesting that these auxiliary units in, the, in, the, in World War II, they were kind of a model also for the stay-behind organization in the Cold War. So um, there is, of course, the Special Operations Executive, and uh, it was also... Stay behind in its early shapes was also quite modeled after this organization. Uh, so, uh, in many you you could you could argue that uh, the British actually were kind of the, um, the ones who uh, put uh, stay behind in motion or, um, or set up the model for it. It's good to hear that we're we're innovators about. <laughs> about about some of this stuff. Thomas, I really appreciate you sharing that. There are many chapters in the uh, the two volumes, as I mentioned before. Gladio is one of them. There's also one on the British state and loyalist paramilitaries in Northern Ireland. Um, Switzerland and the P- Palestinian Liberation Organization, just to mention a few There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information